Good morning, everyone. Uh, good morning to those of you who are following online and to those of you here in the building. It's a really uh, great privilege to be able to worship it together. Uh, this morning, we're going to start a new series in the book of Ephesians, the letter to uh, the church in Ephesus. Um, and so let me read from uh, chapter 1, verse 3 of Ephesians. It says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Let's pray together as we come to the Lord. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Lord, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for these words. We thank you that Jesus has brought us out of eternal darkness and all the horror and pain that goes with that into a life of blessing and peace and joy and freedom and purpose in your presence forever without end. Father, forgive us for our failings this week and help us daily to be inspired by Jesus to live like him in trust, in obedience, in service and compassion. And we lift up all those known to us and close to us who are not well and who are struggling with serious health issues. Would you meet them in their distress and worry and calm their fears? And this morning we lift up the war in Ukraine to you and we ask you for an end to bloodshed and destruction and for peace to be restored. We pray for refugees coming to this country that they will feel welcomed and that they'll be able to get work and education. We pray for the work of the church in Romania as they procure much-needed supplies to refugees on the border. And we pray that out of this turmoil, many would turn to you for lasting peace. And so we pray for Saab as he brings your word to us, that you would anoint his tongue and ignite his heart. And we pray for ourselves that we might be doers of the word, and not hearers only. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So let's come to the word of God. And this morning's reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. So it's Ephesians 1, chapter, chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, 
he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Thank you so much for for reading for us this morning, Elizabeth. Uh, Before we come to God's word, I guess on uh, the theme of listening, uh, let's uh, let's pray. Uh, The psalmist writes in uh, Psalm 85, verses uh, 8 and 9, he says, uh, Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, uh, the truth that it contains, the richness and the wisdom that it contains. Our Father, I pray that our hearts uh, would be ready to receive from you. Uh, would you uh, take away the distractions in our minds and help us to be attentive to the work and the still small voice of your spirit. Encourage our hearts this morning as we come to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so please do keep your Bibles open. Uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 1 would be a great help to me uh, if you're able to follow along as we go through. Now on Easter uh, Sunday, you may reflect that we were dwelling on what Jesus said to his disciples. Uh, he, on that first Sunday, he said, peace be with you. And Luke recorded for us those incredible words. The tomb was empty. Christ had been raised and the victory cry from the throne room, peace be with you. And as Easter people, we want to climb inside those verses, inside that victory cry from heaven and just draw out the implications of what it means for Jesus to say to us, peace be with you. And you may recall that we said the more that we can see uh, into uh, those few words, the more we can see into that, we'll grow uh, in love and knowledge of the Lord Jesus and we'll grow in resilience as well. And so it's with great joy that we start a new series in Ephesians because it is a letter that really helps us climb inside those four words of peace be with you. The letter is absolutely amazing because it has the largest possible view of what God is doing. Really lofty theology, but like a lightning conductor, it grounds what God is saying right into our day to day Live, real life application. The first three chapters uh, give us an amazing revelation of what God has done, is doing, and will continue to do. And the second half of the letter, chapters four through six, helps us understand how we should respond to what God has done. Paul gives us doctrine, verse chapters one through three, and then he gives us practice, chapters four through six, how we live in the light of what God has done. 
And this morning, we're just going to be uh, in the first uh, 14 verses, really just looking at verses 3 uh, through 14. And this is uh, one of those uh, uh, passages that's a a mountaintop uh, passage uh, in Scripture. There is uh, so much uh, treasure in these verses. It's breathtaking. Uh, The comfort that can be found in these few verses uh, will warm uh, the coldest of hearts. Uh, The depth it contains, we could plumb for our whole earthly lives and never quite reach the bottom. And I say all of that because we're only going to be able to scratch the surface uh, of the treasure uh, that we have in our hands. Uh, But hopefully it will whet your appetite for when you gather together in your home groups to, uh, to look at this passage. So this morning, I want us to uh, really just look at two things. Firstly, uh, the scale of God's plan. And then secondly, to look at the components of God's plan, the scale and the components. Now, in these verses, we see that the God that we worship is powerful beyond all compare. And he does indeed control all things, all things. It's not that God only controls the big things, you know, the orbits of stars uh, and galaxies, uh, but the small things, the details in our lives he can't control. No, it's not that he can control only the small things. The small things are what we're going to wear, what we're going to eat, where we're going to go. And somehow the really big things are out of his control. No, no. God controls all things in all places and at all times. Take a look with me at chapter 1, verse 11. Paul writes this. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Paul tells us that God works out everything in conformity and with the purpose of his will. That God controls everything. And not only does he control everything, but he also orchestrates everything. That there is a plan. Uh, That means that the movements of the most distant stars and the number of hairs on my head are all part of God's plan. Where you work, that's part of his plan. Your neighbors, they too are part of his plan. And God is working all of things through uh, for the conformity and the purpose of the will that he has for the plan that he has ordained. And it's not just it's a plan that is uh, complex in scale, but it's also across all time. Take a look with me at verses 4 and 10. He says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world and then in 10, uh, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Uh, God's plan was put into effect before the foundations of the world were laid. We see that in verse 4. That's before time began. And that's, that means that, the time, that, that God's plan doesn't just go back 13.9 billion years. God's plan was before 13.9 billion years ago. And in verse 10, we're told that the final wrapping up of God's plan happens right at the end of eternity. 
That's eternity future. God's plan started from before eternity passed, and God's plan runs through to all eternity future. That's enormous. And it isn't that God is just in control of the material universe, but that God is going to wrap up all things in heaven and things on earth, as we read there in verse 10. At the end of time, God will bring all things together. The Greek here literally means to sum up or to gather up for himself. God's plan extends across time and space, across the material and the spiritual realms, all things everywhere, in all of time before and in all of time future. God's plan covers all of those things. And that's a great comfort. Three quick reasons why that's a good comfort. That's a great comfort. Firstly, it means that history is not random. We are not a chance occurrence. We're not an accident of history. We are not unwanted. We're not unloved. That God himself fashioned each one of us with great care and with great patience. And he's placed us In his plan. Even when others forget us, God will not. God knows us through all eternity. Secondly, history has a point. There will come a day when God will wrap up all things, sum them up under Christ. All events are moving towards that one climax When the new heavens and the new earth will all be summed up and united in Christ. And thirdly, all of history, all of eternity is within the plan of God. And we, you and me, we are in that plan. If our lives are going well or if our lives are marked with pain and suffering, it is not random. Everything that happens to each one of us is ordained within God's plan. And because of that, we do have hope and we do have confidence every day. All of our lives, all of his, all of history heading in the direction of God's ordained plan. But you don't need me to tell you that that doesn't mean it's easy. Some of us carry very deep wounds in our hearts. But the trials that we have endured or that we will endure are being used by God in his good plan, though we might right now struggle to see just how. Elizabeth Elliot uh, lost her husband as he went off on his first missionary journey. He was killed by those he'd gone to preach the gospel to. And he wrote this, in the, she wrote this in the crucible of that pain about God. She said, God is God. And since he is God... Worthy of my worship and my service, I will find rest nowhere else but in his will. And that will is necessarily, infinitely, immeasurably and unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. She says that on that final day when we stand with the Lord Jesus and we look back, at what he has been doing. Well, his plan is revealed to us in all of its fullness. As painful as it may be now, it will make sense. 
it will reveal God as good and his purposes as perfect. We will see his hand over all things. You see, because the alternative is that there is no plan. And that's a view that has indeed been put forward, probably most eloquently by the 20th century philosopher Bertrand Russell. Uh, Bertrand thought that everything is just blind chance, without rhyme or reason. And he says this, Man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and his fears, his loves and his beliefs are the outcome of the accidental collocation of atoms. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruin. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. End quote. Did you hear what he said? Uh, Bertrand isn't a believer. Uh, he thought through, however, the implications of everything just being chance. He thought through what it meant that we were just here by accident, the accidental bumping together of atoms through history. He thought that there was no plan, no vision. And he thought through what that meant for there to be no plan. And he says that without God, without the Bible, that everything that we do or think will be lost or it will be forgotten. And even if you're one of the few people whose name persists for a few centuries, eventually, Bertrand argues, the sun will explode and it will be gone. The universe will wind down, it'll cool, and all life will die. All trace of humanity will be gone. Bertrand says, ultimately, if there is no plan, the whole temple of man's achievement will be buried beneath the debris of the universe in ruins. And he says it's under the scaffolding of unyielding despair that we are forced to live. His worldview is unimaginably bleak, isn't it? Unimaginably bleak. But the world around us says that there is no ultimate hope. That there is nothing but unyielding despair. And that in that unyielding despair, in that place where there is no significance, says the world, that's the very place that the world says that you have to go and find significance. That's the very place that the world says humanity has to go and build a life. And the trouble is that that despair and that hopelessness is spreading through uh, all people. It's what our children and our grandchildren are hearing from the media empires from their unbelieving friends and from our unbelieving families. That's the ground beat all around them. If as Christians we don't teach our children well, then that despair will bleed into their lives. Now that despair is just draining away all their hope, isn't it? And we see that in the unravelling of the mental health of so many people, especially young people. 
people who are thinking through uh, the implications of thinkers like Bertrand and its impact on all areas of our lives. I mean, it, affects, it, it probably affects some of the things that we do as well. Uh, for instance, it impacts our ability to build and form good relationships. It's reflected in our inability to make and keep commitments for fear of missing out. A reluctance to serve others and growing levels of selfishness. And I wonder if you see or recognize any of that in your own lives. If we do, if we do, then we just need to dwell on what Paul has said here. That all things are in God's plan. There is a real hope in all situations, in all places, and in all times. A God who holds everything together offers real hope to everyone, everywhere. So it's great. There's a plan. But what does the plan look like? Well, that's our second point, the components of the plan. Uh, take a look at the passage again in your Bibles, and I want us to uh, just take a 30,000-foot view of the things that God has done and the things that God is going to do. And then I'm just going to shed a little bit of light on a couple of the components of the plan. As I said, time won't allow us to dig into uh, these uh, these ideas uh, well this morning, but just uh, glance across them uh, and unpack them in your house groups uh, later this week. Firstly, this blue square here just represents, uh, the, the, I guess, the, the, the arena uh, of God's plan. And I want us to see, firstly, that there, that there is a plan, and the bedrock of that plan that God has is blessing and grace. Uh, take a look in your Bibles with me. Uh, the plan is set in a framework of love, of blessing, and of grace. In verse 3, we see that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And that blessing is ours because of the grace which we see in verse 6, the praise of his glorious grace. And in verse 7, according to the riches of his grace. It's not the result of our merit, of our righteousness, our works, or our heritage. It's a plan set in the attitude of God's heart where there is an overflow of love. And within that, we're told in verses uh, four to six that God the Father chose us in love for adoption to sonship. Goes on in verse seven to tell us that we are redeemed and forgiven. The plan has Christ at the very center and us in Christ. We see that in verses nine through ten. And here in the future, God is going to sum all things up. In Christ. And finally, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. God Himself comes to dwell inside us. The plan of God is to bring His people to Himself, those He's chosen from before the dawn of time. For those chosen to come before God, uh, we need to be holy and we need to be blameless. Something that can only be achieved by the work of God's son on the cross to secure our righteousness and our status as his children. Having done that, we find ourselves in Christ 
and all of God's goodwill, his delight, his love and his pleasure that the father has. He brings and he brings it and sets it upon us. And our participation in the plan, uh, the certainty of our election, our adoption, the predestination, the forgiveness, the redemption and the sealing by his Holy Spirit. That's all God's will and guaranteed by the work of the spirit in our lives. And so we can see the work of the Trinity uh, is involved in the whole plan of salvation. And I just want to glimpse uh, two things, really, uh, for us this morning. Um, God choosing us and redemption. Just those two things. Firstly, God chooses us. Uh, in verse four of our reading, uh, we read that God chose us before the creation of the world. Uh, if you're here this morning and you're trusting Jesus as your savior, uh, then delight in the knowledge that before time began, he knew you. Now, he didn't just know things about you. It wasn't that he knew how tall you'd be, the color of your hair. Uh, it isn't that God only knew facts about you. But Paul says that before the foundation of the world, God knew you relationally, personally, individually. As you know a friend or as you know a spouse, he knows us. He chose us. And he predestined us for adoption. And what a great comfort that is. God chose us to be part of his plan. Not as a bit part that is forgotten as soon as we step off the stage. But right at the very heart of what God is doing through all of time, all of space, all of creation. And the plan is cosmically large. And he called little me and you to be part of that plan. He not only knew us, but he predestined us for sonship in the central, eternal drama of Christ's work. And that gives us radical confidence in who we are as Christians. Our heartfelt profession of faith, no matter how weak we may think it is, is something that God planted in our hearts from before the foundation of the world. Now, I know that the use of the word predestined can be a word that causes us to pause. Well, we might not like the thought that God has predestined uh, all things. And I know that some of my friends balk at the idea that God has predestined things. And they would ask, does that mean all things are fixed? Does it mean that nothing can change? What about my free will? Now, these objections come up and they may appear reasonable, uh, but they are fraught with all manner of problems. Uh, for most people that I speak to, uh, they do have a sense of uh, free will being an overarching truth, that we choose what happens to us. We choose uh, where we go to school. We choose the people we're going to marry. We choose the careers that we want and so on. But actually, if you think about it, free will choices occur in a relatively small arena don't they? Really, just at the margins. Uh, for instance, uh, we, we don't choose our parents. Uh, we don't choose when we were born. Uh, we don't choose what century or what place we were born in. We don't choose if our neighbor is going to invade our nation or not. We don't choose how our bodies will work or when they'll stop working. 
We don't choose the laws of physics that we want to abide by. And we don't choose our own IQ. And on and on it goes. In the really big things, we're subject to external conditions or choices that have been made for us. We actually only exercise free will in a tiny proportion of area, a tiny proportion of our lives. So it's a much narrower construct than we might think. But the question still stands, what about free will? Free will or predestination? Which is it? Has God predestined everything or am I free to choose? What is the answer to the question, free will or predestination? The Bible says the answer to that question is yes. Yes, free will or predestined, the answer is yes. Uh, The Bible has a much more nuanced uh, understanding, as you would expect, of the question of free will or predestination. And it tells us in our reading as well that God has indeed predestined us for adoption before the dawn of time, before the foundations of the world were laid. And it seems from that reading that there's nothing that we could do about it. Yet, the Bible tells us that our choices matter, that we are morally culpable for the decisions that we make. And we're told here in verses four to five, aren't we, that God the Father chose us, predestined us for adoption. And for those who trust in Christ, they have the comfort of knowing that they have indeed been chosen. But now look down at verse 13, where Paul tells us that we were included in Christ When you heard the message of truth, when you believed. We've been chosen and adopted, yes. But we are called to believe and to trust. God's chosen us, predestined us, but we're morally accountable for responding to the gospel. We're chosen, yes. We're accountable, yes. And this is the blend of God's sovereign choice and our responsibility that is writ large throughout Scripture. Uh, For instance, we see this in the first sermon that's preached by Peter in Acts 2, where Peter tells his listeners that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and knowledge of God and killed by the hands of lawless men. God's plan was to send Jesus and have him die on a cross, but... Those who killed him were responsible, fully responsible. And if you want to delve into the question of predestination further, uh, do go back to last Sunday evening's talk that Colin gave uh, on the topic. It's uh, it's available online. Secondly, redeemed. Uh, Paul's told us in verse 3 that we are called to be holy and to be blameless, to stand before a God who throughout Scripture describes himself as holy. We need to be utterly set apart for God, that is to be holy. But we must also be blameless. We must be presented to God as one who meets the full requirements of the law and not those who are marred by stain of rebellion against God. And we know that even if God has chosen us, uh, we know, don't we, in our own hearts that we are far from blameless. And I think of my own thought patterns, which are quite corrupted. Uh, silly example, driving back from my retreat this week, uh, somebody cut me up. It didn't take very long for me to get jolly cross. And if we're honest, um, you know, we know that in our lives, 
Uh, we're not fully and wholly committed, are we, to God? Yeah, we love the things that God gives us, but we don't oftentimes love the one who gives us those things. And as we journey through Easter, we saw that uh, God in his love, he chose us for himself. And the way that he made us right with him was through the death of Christ on the cross. And here, the imagery that Paul uses in verse 7 speaks of freeing slaves, of redeeming slaves, to buy them out of slavery, to redeem them. Uh, There was a pastor in the U.S., who was telling a, 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 an account of where his uh, car got towed, it got pulled away, uh, taken off to an impound. Uh, he had to go pay the fine to get his car back. And when they handed him the chit, they stamped it with the words, redeemed. Yeah. He had paid the fine and the car was set free. Yeah, so redeeming has two components, doesn't it? It's paying the fine and it is being set free. And that's how we're to understand what Paul's saying here. Redeeming us pays the price of our rebellion and it sets us free from the power of sin over our lives. And we know because of Easter, don't we, that the cost of redeeming us, of redeeming you and redeeming me, the price that's required to release us from slavery to bondage to sin was the death of God's own son. So the question, I guess, for us this morning is this. Do we, you and I, do we yes, see ourselves as so valuable, so beautiful, so treasured that the creator of the universe would have us to be part of his perfect plan to bring all things together under his son? That you are so valuable, beautiful and treasured that he would send his son to die for you and me. Uh, When we think about ourselves, when we think about who we are, is that the truth? Is that the truth through which we see our lives, who we are? Is that the truth through which we see our status? Does that reality really define us? Or or, or is it our mistakes? Is it our rebellion against God, our sin that tends to define us? Do we feel somehow unworthy of being a Christian? That somehow do we think that on that last day as we stand before Christ, he's going to look down his list and say, how did you get in? If it's our errors, if it's our previous sin, uh, the suffering, the injustice that we've experienced... If it's that that defines you, can I plead with you this morning? Bring the teaching of Ephesians deep into your heart. Allow the truth that God wants to have you with him through all eternity. That he chose you and me from before the foundation of the world. And if we can bring that truth, right, really into the very core of our being, it will burn away any self-doubt, any self-loathing that we have. It will affirm us to the skies. But knowing that God chose us will humble us as well when we dwell upon the price that God paid to bring us to himself. 
that our rebellion against God was so serious that nothing less than the death of Jesus. Think about this. The death of the one that God has purposed all things for to sum all things up into that one person. That his death is the price for us being freed. And the more of that that we can see, the more that will humble us. And we need to see both sides of that truth. Both sides of that truth of our salvation. That we are loved to the sky and that we're humbled to the dust at the same time together. That will make us bold. It will make us humble. We'll have confidence and we'll have real gentleness at the very same time. Allowing the truth of what God has done to settle on our hearts will change us, it will shape us, and it will mould us. That's how the Spirit will work in our lives. To shape and mould us to be more and more like his Son, the Lord Jesus. That's why Paul starts his letter with doctrine. Only in the light of what God has done can our lives be changed. Only when our lives are orientated toward God can we live lives that glorify him and love one another. And we can do all of this because there's a plan. There's a plan that is driven by love and grace and blessing. By a holy and righteous God who calls each one of us at such a great cost. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these amazing truths. Uh, the enormity of your plan of salvation and the way that you have drawn us into that. Now help us in the weeks ahead to continue to dwell on the truths contained in this letter. And with the truth of your sovereignty, fill our hearts with assurance. We pray that the depth of your love would comfort, strengthen and encourage us to live as you call us to live. In Jesus' name. Amen.